Governments are led and have always been led. And so we as the individuals need to find ways to unite our voices and come together and make decisions that ultimately have regenerative outcomes, not even sustainable or degenerative because there's no bloody time for that. And it doesn't matter what the language around it is. It might be agroecological, it might be biological, it might be regenerative. In my mind, they're semantics and I'm not going to get caught in the bullshit of that. But I, I do think that every one of us has a role to play in the way we make every single daily decision. And the outcomes of that have an impact on cultures, on communities, on animals, on ecosystems, on humans. That was Jade Miles, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to my number one room at the uh, Glen Innes Motor Lodge, Travel Lodge, I think it is, I don't know what it is, Motor Lodge, and it's actually quite clean and tidy, it's lovely. Um, I've just yesterday interviewed um, Baden uh, McDool out there in, uh, on Yabingra in uh, northern New South Wales, um, who is a Highland beef um, farmer, one of the guys who... Um, fattens animals for Highland beef and what a lovely bloke we had a good look around his, his farm it actually rained we got there and it pissed down for, for 20 minutes uh, which was most unexpected but um, uh, his crops out there were looking for a bit of a drink so it was all very timely um, so I'm on my way today to um, up to the Sunshine Coast to get ready for uh, our two day our two day contribution to the four day um, food and farming festival that Cindy Amir is putting on there at um, uh, at her farm at Mullaney. So enough of that. And talking about farms, I just got a special announcement to make. Um, I'm hoping that you guys are excited about this announcement. We have got um, we're, we're we're sort of part way through our webinar series uh, for the um, for the farming smarter, not harder uh, regenerative agriculture mastery course, and we have some farm tickets. <laughs> left for our farm field day and feast on the, lots of Fs there, um, on the 13th of October. Um, we have a number of tickets left that we're opening to the general public now. Uh, so if you want to spend uh, a day with people like Cherie Gooding, Katie Zerner, uh, Stuart Andrews, uh, they're all on the some of our, um, and Katie, Katie Zerner, uh, did I say Katie? I think I did. Um, hopefully Kim Deans is going to come down as well. Um, they're all part of our webinar series guest presenters they'll be there Hamish McKay will be there Helen Lewis from Land to Market will be there hopefully one of the boys or girls from um, uh, Atlas Carbon actually I think they will be there I'm just not sure which one yet might be um, Cole Phelan from Atlas Carbon 
uh, will be there as well. We're going to have a massive day of demonstrations of natural seconds farming, biodynamics, a bit of animal uh, animal health stuff with Cherie, um, and a chat with um, Helen and I about um, land to market. Uh, Cole will chat about um, Atlas Carbon and their new sort of blueprinting uh, carbon and natural um, capital blueprinting pro- um, service. It's going to be massive. We're going to have eat um, uh, lamb and pork. Uh, well, maybe not pork. Actually, lamb and beef. Our own lamb beef. A bit of a, a bit of a uh, breaking down demonstration by um, Darren O'Rourke, who was the uh, head butcher at uh, Victor Churchill's there in Sydney, voted at one point as the world's best butcher shop, or amazing, or best decked out. He's a great bloke, and um, he's coming down to break down an animal and cook for the day. So he'll do a demo with everyone um, there, and uh, you'll get to feast on some of our lovely food uh, that we produce there at Hanumino using biodynamic uh, principles and and um, regenerative practices. And that's the that's the drill. For $150, you can secure your spot. Uh, get on to our website, charlieart.com.au, click on all the buttons you need to, the events page, the Farming Smarter Not Harder, it should be there, and uh, you can get yourself a spot to our feast. There's only 50 tickets, actually, so there's not actually many were released to the public because most of them have already been sold uh, to the people doing the webinar series. And uh, if you can get yourself there on the 13th of October, it's a Friday, stay in Burua and stay nearby, make a weekend of it, and uh, we'd love to see you there. Now, to our guest, Jade Miles at Black Barn Farm. Um, with her, Charlie, her partner, was there, uh, popped in and out. It was quite funny. Um, but the, it was it was lovely to catch up with Jade. Um, we, it's actually, we had a few false starts. I had a few tra- travel plan, uh, plans change over the last sort of six six months or so. We finally got to convene at Black Barn Farm. I saw the farm, the, 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 the barn, which is black. Um, it's amazing, actually. And... Um, Jade's incredible. I just love the fact that she's, you know, she she grew up in a in a very sort of homesteading kind of environment, and she has continued to do that. She's teaching her children. She's teaching other people, um, and she's part of the sustainable table team, uh, playing a major role there. And it's just lovely to see uh, someone who's, sort of, I guess, leveraging their childhood in in such a wonderful way and such a such a such a productive, such a effective, and 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 a in, in a in a way that's contributing to society and community. Um, it's about education, and she's just love the fact. And the interesting thing, she's got a tiny kitchen, really well, small, I guess, compared to you know, a lot of farm kitchens in the beautiful house there. And um, the amount of stuff that they must produce in that kitchen is just incredible. It's like the must be like the TARDIS. Maybe when you step in there, it's just enormous because so much. Beautiful stuff comes out of there. The stuff that um, the Jade and family and Woofers and Charlie and so on um, produce and bottle and pickle and all sorts of stuff. It's just fantastic. It's such a lovely, wholesome um, way to live and really inspiring. Um, Future Steading is her is her book, um, which we chatted about, and you can get it at any good bookstore. Um, so enough of me, enough of waffling on about how wonderful she is. Um, let's get stuck into the interview I did with Jade Miles. The Regenerative Journey. Jade Miles, welcome to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to your lovely pine dining table in the kitchen table table that is situated in the old school teacher's cottage. Yep. 
that was in Stanley yeah. and moved by Bullock in the 1940s yeah. to here. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. This is amazing. Lovely to have you at our kitchen table. It's amazing. It sits, 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 seats 10 or 12. Oh, it has seated 16 pretty comfortably, but mm-hmm. generally it seats 10. When we have woofers, it definitely seats 10 You do regularly. breakfast every morning. We do breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah, around cool. this are you, And you cook? You, you do all the cooking? Uh, breakfast is pretty solid. Like, we know what that looks like. It's just all the um, stewed fruits that we've made in the harvest season that are in our winter stores, and then we do a fresh groat grind every morning, and so that's pretty standard. And then lunch tends to be a conglomeration of whatever the heck we all put our hands on in the veggie garden or in the fridge. Good on you. And then dinner, we take in turns. It's all on the whiteboard behind that door over there where we write up everyone's responsibilities. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that because I love I love what I'm seeing and smelling and hearing. And tasting. And tasting, yes. Lovely um, rhubarb tea with a hint of orange. Mm-hmm. Orange grown here. Not here. They, here. We don't because we're just too bloody cold. We've got about five orange trees in behind the packing shed, but because um, it's the only place they don't get in nailed pots. by frost. No, they're in mm. the ground. But um, these oranges are from a beautiful couple down in the Warby Ranges, which is about forty minutes from here. And they used to sell all their oranges through uh, the co-op when I was really heavily involved in that. But um, I rang them just before the Off Grid Living Festival and said, hey, we've got our juicer. If you've still got oranges in your tr- on your trees, you've still got your trees in the ground, they now don't run the orange grove. They run a um, sheep property, but with 100-year-old orange trees in the paddock. So she mm. said, we're not there. Help yourself. Go and fill as many boxes as you need. And so we picked them all for the Off Grid Living Festival where we did orange juice but had a few left over. So these are just the last of them. So they're bloody gorgeous, aren't they? Delicious and value-added in the rubos. Yeah, tea there. That's yeah. so good. So um, we've given everyone a bit of a heads up. Oh, I've just noticed the chili sitting up there. That's cool. Yeah, that's that where we drive. That's keep werewolves away. Oh, that's, gar- <laughs> that's garlic, that's isn't garlic. it? They're all hanging in the um, in the cellar under the barn. No, the, yeah, the chilies we grow in the hoop house because again, it's really hard to grow solanaceas here because um, even in the summer. Oh, just too short a growing season. Like our last frost last year was the 18th of December. No. Yes. How rude. How rude. Oh, man, that was four plantings of tomatoes, pumpkins, corn. Every time I planted thinking we'll be right, we'll be right. It had grabbed me. Got nailed. Grabbed me. Short and curlies. So So you just cut the cut. There's a few things we just grow straight in the hoop house and chilies are one of them and then I hang them and whiz them. And so we just do chilli flakes. That'll give us enough chilli flakes for the year. Oh, right. Do you put them in a little sprinkler and, like, sprinkle them on the pizza <laughs> and stuff? I should. One of our woofers last year was a, a, a yank and he put it on every single meal. <laughs> His porridge. Well, yeah, we, we just watched the chilli flake jar diminish. <laughs> You're, like, still months out from harvest and it's like, we are going to not get to harvest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Without running you know how out. That rolls. Yeah. Um, now, Jade, let's – so – <laughs> oh, some. Are they sheep? Am I having my specs on sheep goats? Yeah, they're she- no. The, sheep that paddock is an absolute polyculture. It's got sheep, horses, and goats. Yeah, and then sometimes a very harassing, untrainable um, Jack Russell who gets in there and, and drives them all crazy. That we just saw this morning. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But um, that's predominantly the goat paddock. But Minnie has now got her horses in there. Sorry, it's predominantly the sheep paddock. But I, we do milking goats as well. And um, they do need to be moved. We're just fiddling with fences, but they're in there for the time being. Yeah, cool. Well, they're adding to the ambience. 
Beverly yeah. and the falling leaves, the sheep, they the are. horse. The rams are due for culling Friday. Rams are due for culling. Yep. As so, in, as in, finished up with. That's the one. Done their job. Yes. Do they go in a pot? They go in our pot, so we don't sell them. Although we have got enough, we are on a bit of a schedule to grow enough sheep in the next twelve months to make sure we've got enough for our boys to go from apple cider donuts that they currently sell at Blackburn Farm to um, lamb burgers as well. Okay, when I get to all that produce, because um, I want to, I want to tick it off. Uh, so, Jade, we're in your lovely family home mm-hmm. and lovely to be here, by the way. We've had a few false starts. I've cancelled at least twice, I think. Um, and as I said to you, I nearly had to do it again yesterday. But we, <laughs> the, 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 coast is, the coast is clear, so am I. We've, we're, we're here. So what does it mean for you to be here sitting, not necessarily me and this situation, but to be in such a lovely home with your sheep and horse and kids and husband and Chilies and porridge and falling <laughs> leaves and apples ready to be grafted. You've paid a beautiful picture. Um, this is this is definitely a long held and hard earned dream, and it's definitely where my soul is at peace in the most real way possible. My nails are filthy. My hands are calloused. My head is completely full because there's a million moving parts no matter what the season, even if we're closed to the public and, you know, my pod is on hold for a season. You know, even when all of those things are sort of put relatively backburnerish, I'm still, the, the days are pretty full and long, um, albeit dark at the moment. I, I don't know about you, but we're rising in the dark and still functioning in the dark mm. when, you know, putting chickens to bed and geese to bed. And yesterday I was cleaning out the hoop house and I was... Um, very tempted to have my head torch on, and I thought, no, 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 I'm just going to call it quits. We'll just <laughs> pull up stumps. It's home. It's definitely home, and it's not a home that's pristine and, and glossy and shiny. It's it's real and it's dirty and it's chaotic and it's full. And, um, you know, it, it's, where, it's where we're raising kids and working with our community and hosting woofers and sharing knowledge and you know, ch- ch- discovering the challenges around this very kitchen table. This table holds a lot of deep conversation. So it's, it's beautiful. It's lovely to know I belong somewhere. Well, can I say the, the, the most messy part about this house is me having come in here and dumped my stuff on your desk, on your, on your desk here. It was, it's immaculate. For those who can't see it, um, Jade's clearly lying and but ha- very house proud. Understandably, it's beautiful. It's immaculate. It's so. That's pretty chaotic. It's beautiful. No, no. Check that dresser over there. It's no, it's cool. amazing. It's neat. Everything's there. There's so much stuff on it. I recognise the the cup in the middle. That pattern. Oh, We've isn't got plates. It We've got plates of that. My auntie turned up not very long ago and said, "Darling, you're the only one in the whole family. My family's enormous. Who would appreciate these things? I found them in the op shop. You must have them. And so I've got these. I've got one for each child. Well, I, but, but drinking tea. Out of those cups is there's mm. nothing better, is there? No. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I've got to say, I'm not knocking fun. that. Yeah, but, but there's also those little plates that sit behind mm. themselves. When yeah, my daughter, and the, and who the, inevitably the, decides to make a cake most days, yep. um, whips one out, we pull those little plates out and drink tea. And so you should mm. in style with reverence to the tea and cake. Um, so Jay, when did the? Let's go back to the beginning. 
Can we go. You don't have to give me the twenty fourth of August, nineteen seventy seven, beginning. Or <laughs> <laughs> the... I was going to say you don't have to give me the date, <laughs> as in give give anything away. But but that's fine. No, that's fine. Let's do that. So yeah, where what, when did that happen? When did you arrive? Who was there? Um, and then where did you go home to? <laughs> oh, that's a long story. Let's give the short version. Um, grew up with an artist as a dad and a nurse as a mum in a rough and tumble, chaotic community or village existence because my family on both sides is massive and um, most of them are all still there. And so there's five generations alive still in that little community in Gippsland. That's where I Gippsland. grew up. Yeah. yeah, in West Gippsland. And um, pretty Dad was pretty anti-authoritarian. Mum's pretty strong-minded. She ran a hospital um, to within an inch of her life. She's fairly highly organised and she's really, she actually is probably where I function with my head the most. You know, the influence from mum is is very strategic and very practical and very pragmatic and very hardworking and um, very black and white, whereas dad is an artist. He's creative and he's abstract and he's difficult and he's irrational and he's inspiring and he's comfortable to challenge and um, he pushes thoroughly outside of mainstream thinking. And so we kind of had the best of both worlds, really. It wasn't necessarily an easy childhood because Dad painted for a living, so there wasn't any money in that and still does paint for a living. Um, And they separated. It was not an easy separation and it was on and off for years. But um, that really, I guess, laid the foundation stones for my understanding of what it meant to truly live in a way that is full of reciprocity and full of deeply connected obligation and, and mutual aid within your community. And, you know, they grew the vast majority of their own food and if they didn't grow it, we swapped it with others. Dad traded artwork for just about everything known to man. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there were lots of, of other family members growing things too. So, so we lived well but we lived with you know, the bum hanging out of our op shop purchase pants or patched up with curtain pants. Um, it was a beautiful childhood and probably one that I held a bit romantically until I was able to create it myself. So we're sort of here, but I couldn't be here without that as a foundation and without Charlie, my Charlie, um, wanting that as well. And that Happened relatively early in the piece. We both knew we didn't want to live in the city, which is where we'd met at uni. We moved up here to Stanley um, when we were just 20, uh, maybe 21 actually. Yeah, it might have been 21. And we were surrounded then by multi-generational apple, apple orchardists that still had trees in the ground, but they were diminishing. And why Stanley? Um, this is Charlie's neck of the woods. This is where his family were from, not Stanley in particular. He was from Porpunka, but... We wanted to be at the top of the catchment. We wanted to be close to a town that people would want to visit us from our Melbourne life in, and that was Beechworth. Um, we wanted to both be able to work professionally but still have a little bit of land and grow our own food. And, it, you know, it was probably pretty ideolo- ideological, but we were really young. Like, we were only 21. And so we were probably 15 years younger than all of our friends then became because we had no choice but to become friends with who was here. And met beautiful people, but much, much older than us. So for a while we were kind of a bit misfitty. We didn't quite quite 
our age group didn't quite fit in with the age group that was here. And so we we're a little bit ahead of our time. There's now plenty of people that are younger than us, not just because we're old, but because, you know, it's a place where people actually want to move to now. It's got a really strong, vibrant sense of life to it. But um, we watched as all the multi-generational orchards were pushing their small-scale apple orchards out and, you know, bulldozing them and burning them. And they were doing that because there no money in it? Or? No money in it and no succession plan. There was no multi-generational desire to be on land and work like dogs for nothing. Is that... Can, that, that, um, can you turn that off? Can you turn the fan off, yeah. you reckon? Yeah. I've only just sort of noticed it, actually. Yeah, you notice it when you... That's it. Oh, the plane comes to a halt. Yeah. You don't even realise the subliminal noise until it's gone. Mm. Beauty. Um, okay, so 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 it was it was a very different place then than it is now in terms of community, I guess, farming practices and yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely um, filled to the back to back commodity apple production mostly apple, cherry, pear, a little bit of chestnut. Now there's heaps of chestnut, a little bit of residual um, potato from sort of earlier generations, but. You know, there was no money in it and the price of real estate for lifestylers was mm. appealing and so for farmers who'd worked like dogs all their life and didn't have kids that wanted to take the farm on, the best solution was to push the trees out and move into town. Push the trees out and, and and sell, sell as, as a bare, as a bare, bare block that yeah. someone could just put a house on or... Well, they're small scale. Simple. So most of the blocks here are sort of sub-20 acres, you might get the odd 30 or 40-acre really? block, but most of them, ours is only 25 yeah. or 23. Probably enough, eh? Yeah, we didn't think so. We took a really long time to find this block of land because um, we thought we needed 150 or 200 acres. <laughs> My dad said to me, you guys want to grow biologically. You want to grow intensely. You're looking at hort. Oh, honestly, if you want to grow biologically, you need to be on the dirt every day and you need to be walking your rows of, of trees and you need... You know, you need to be watching and observing really intimately and you can't do that on 200 acres easily. And if you're trying to create a scale that allows you guys as a family to manage this without having to bring other staff in, then you need to think about that. And the yield that you'll get off, especially with high-density things like, like berries, the yield that you'll get off that will be enough. I guess prove, prove it on a small scale and then, you know, if you want to roll yeah. it out and, you know, Times five it, then you guess you can. And Charlie does say that on the odd occasion. He says, this isn't big enough. This is our trial plot. And I think, shit, our trial plot. We're seven, <laughs> we're seven and a half years we're into still, it. We're still experimenting. <laughs> oh, we're fully yeah. still experimenting. You know, there's very few things. So we just pushed six years' worth of growing out in our cherries. We just pushed our cherries out because they mm. just don't thrive under our practice methods and and they come at a different, they harvest at a different time, so it doesn't quite work for our path to market, which is direct through UPIC. So for lots of reasons, we're still experimenting, and the possibility of scaling this up is definitely still alive, but um, it's real. I mean, you know, it's physical, mm. really physical. Long hours, and our bodies yeah. are tired, and it costs a bloody lot of money. So to put a 10-year period of your life on steroids where you're working full-time as a farmer and working full-time off-farm to pay for the establishment phase of the farm, 
um, why you got young kids and while you're still really heavily involved in community organisations and volunteer contribution and education. Like we run education programs here with schools, groups, and that's essentially a gift. Like we charge maybe 10 bucks a head per kid, but, you know, that's a benevolent <laughs> gift to the next generation to understand what farming could look like and so we do it. But um, there's only so many hours in a day when you grow your own food as well. And So we're tired. We're really tired. And I don't say that very much because people don't want to hear that. Mm. But the truth is I'm knackered. Mm. And also... The other, the other bit of the truth might be that you shouldn't have a perimenopausal woman in the same house as a testosterone-filled teenage boy. Oh, really? <laughs> well, is there's that... two of those in this house. <sighs> boy. So the boys are six, what were they, 16? 16. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they're a force. Yeah. So, well, I guess what can you – I guess that's – that's you manage that then. You're managing it. You're here. You've, you've got time enough to sit with me, which I very much appreciate. I wasn't here on the weekend. On the weekend I thought, I actually don't want to manage you. I'm going to go and check into a hotel. <laughs> I'm going. So, so they, I'm do they live here or are they, are they on, on site? As in, They're not here right now. Tell, no. Trust me, you know about it. You yeah. hear biffing going on in their bedroom where oh, there's right. holes in the plaster. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the three kids are here. And yeah. we just basically school, school today. School today. School today. Should have unschooled them. Probably my single only regret is that I pushed my kids through a mainstream schooling system mm. and it doesn't suit them at all. What do you, what do you see that you don't like or, or in them or in the school system that makes you feel that way? Uh, mediocrity. I think, you know, the school system does its best and it's really under pressure right now. And to the credit of the teachers, they went through a Montessori school in primary and that was beautiful. And it local? Really, local, mm, yeah, aren't we okay. lucky? Yeah, so that was amazing. Um, you know, they don't love the classroom. None of my kids love the classroom. They'd rather be on the back of a horse or, oh, sure. you know, playing soccer. Are you can have any more. Have we got any more? I'll just have the dregs. No. No, that's all right. Dregs are good. In there. Dregs are good. Dregage. <laughs> <laughs> I could always put more water in it. No, that's all good. Um, but... The teachers themselves are magnificent. The system that they operate within is an abstraction from my kids' ability to use their curiosity, to define their own sense of identity, to connect with the outside world when they want and need to. You know, I think it's really just a microcosm of my greater concerns for the cultural system that we're operating within. <laughs> I was just doing it with that. <laughs> those who are watching the video, you'll you'll hear the, the noise quality improve <laughs> remarkably. I've never done that before. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because I was listening to something that came up in one of the podcast interviews I did yesterday, and I can't remember which one of the boys it was. Um, I was listening to something. It wasn't a podcast. It was like a positive intelligence program thing I'm doing, and it said – don't try and get an orange tree to grow apples. Yeah. And it was yeah. so good. It was like, you know, kids, the school system doesn't allow for the breadth of Mm-mm. character in children to, yeah. you know, and they get, <clears throat> and as, as um, it was Jake, Jake, I think it was, he said, you know, oh, no, he was talking about himself. He said, look, he, 
all of the things that he he did at school, he played up, he was, you know, disruptive, he was loud, he was this, he was that, all those things that he was, would, 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 you know, drummed into him to be not good are all of his strengths now. Yeah. You know, in life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of my twins on their grade six report said, this child is belligerent. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm a bit put out by that. They, they are so right. He is so belligerent. Mm. And as a parent, he drives me crazy. But um, it'll stand him in good stead because he questions everything. Mm. And he challenges, comfortably challenges and confidently and articulately challenges everything that's put in front of him. That's great. So a complete nightmare to parent. And he would have been a nightmare to be a teacher of, so I fully understand why it sits in his grade six report. But <laughs> And grade six, cool. You know, grade six. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the other one, his report said something along the lines of um, the only way we can get him to understand maths is to put him in a tree so, and use the natural world. And, Count the leaves. You know, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like my kids just don't belong in a classroom. And I was fortunate to have big swathes of time not in a classroom. And actually my kids don't really that much either. They've paddled the Murray River and they've done amazing trips to the States where they've, you know, lived in summer camps where there's no electricity and you know, it's a bit like Lord of the Flies at times, and you know we've we've done big blocks of time where they're just not at school, and they're curious, and they're engaged, and they're interested, and you, you know, I feel like I've I as the parent who is too busy to was too busy to homeschool, and also they're twins, they're identical twins, so I didn't have the self confidence that I now have as a parent to say. They didn't need a massive network of mm. mates to separate their twinness. They are never going to separate. <clears throat> now that I know that twins function as a unified organism, they mm. just, they just, mum used to say, make them twin individuals. And I did everything I could. They dressed in different colours. They, you know, I tried to give them separate play dates. But, you know, they've got the same. There's, there's a gravity there, isn't there? Oh, it's. Mm. And you can't challenge it, even as the parent, if they're mm. trying to kill each other, which happens pretty regularly now that they're big, strong, testosterone-filled mm. lads. They, um, you know, you, you can't step in because suddenly they both turn on you. Sounds like you've done a great job no, as, a, still as a mother and a parent. Still, now, and now they just want to belong. They just mm. want to be like every other 16-year-old that's in their sphere. Belong socially. With their peers and that sort of thing. Yeah, so they've pushed back hard on this way of life, and so. But um, what this way of life? So the so so what what are they? More alternative. Yeah, but what what are what are they? What are they? What what's their the what's the alternative for this way of life that they're sort of? So it's one thing to push back, which is understood. Yeah, that's fine. But what are they? they If you go right, okay. If you don't want this, what 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 would they say? So well, living, them, living in a, an apartment in Melbourne or that's something. That's exactly what they say. Oh, we okay. want to go to Melbourne, we want to make a lot of money and we want to live where it's fast and bright and mm. instant and where I can just go to the shops and buy my food. <laughs> so, do I have to go and dig it out of the ground? Yeah. Yeah, right. Non-permi food. That blackboard in there on that kitchen is where we put all our – it's currently got a jobs list on it, but it's where we put all our whatever we're running lower because we order bulk foods a few times a year. So if we're running low on it and there's lots of people functioning in this house, they can put it up. But Bertie often scratches it clean and writes non-permy food. <laughs> <laughs> so something tin bought in the shop somewhere, yeah. highly processed. Yeah. So you're um, in a week. Yeah. 
There are 21 meals. Is that right? 7, 14, 21. Let's yeah. just say two meals a day. How many of those are totally from you, from here? Um, it completely depends on the season. Yeah. And it depends who's cooking. And I, I say that because the boys have a tendency to prefer food that's being bought. You know, they, they'll come home and then go straight to soccer and not want to have to make the sourdough base. Like if I cook, I tend to cook only from the garden and only from the winter stores that I've put aside in the preserving jars. But I've grown up with that way of life. It's absolutely innate. It's etched into me and life is really busy. Mm. Like like this would be the busiest period of our entire life. Both of us working off farm. Year or life? Right life. Entire um, life. Just probably the next two years are pretty key because yep. the kids have pushed back a bit on us having woofers because we've had beautiful woofers. There's not been one that I wouldn't have again, which is saying something. We've had close to 50 of them over the last few years and they're amazing. But, you know, the kids are sitting around the dining table and we're having big philosophical conversations. Just not what a 15-year-old wants to do. They just want mum and dad and siblings and and just for the chat about school or the... Yeah. Yeah. So... Woofers for us are only September, October, November, and then that's harvest. That's, that's no, that? that's um spring. So that's foundations. That's getting all our veggie garden in. Right, okay. That's getting all our mulching done on our trees outside. Right, that's getting right. all our irrigation. Oh, harvest would be sorted. Harvest or, is autumn. Yeah, autumn, so we yeah. harvest um Feb, March, April, May. So we have a four month woofer window in there as well. So. Also, it takes a bit of time with our woofers for them to, because they all grow, they cook whatever they want to cook as the evening meal, and we all take it in turns when it's all hands on deck. And they still have, they have an inclination for the first couple of weeks to, to go to the supermarket, and we say, no worries, here's the money, go and get the food. But generally, by the time they've left, they realise we don't tend to do trips to the supermarket terribly regularly. Um, we tend to make it all here from scratch if we can and if we've got the time and we tend to be led purely by what's in the veggie garden or what can be foraged or, you know, what we've got excess of in in the store's cupboard. Which requires a bit of planning, yeah? requires heaps of planning and mm. it requires a totally different way of thinking and so we're really understanding that that takes time for when people get here. So it depends who cooks. So the question of... How much of your food do you grow yourself? None of our grains because we don't have enough space for grains, so we buy all that in bulk. Um, Most of our meat, although last year we didn't do a cull of sheep because we're trying to increase our sheep so that we can carry enough to also carry the boys lamb burger business and then feed ourselves. We go through about six sheep a year for ourselves. Um. We have is that including the wolf when the wolfers are here? That's, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, How many wolfers do you have at a time? Yep. Um, two to four. Sometimes okay. we've had six or seven and it's yep. too many. <clears throat> Sometimes we've had one and it's probably not enough. I imagine you'd go through many more sheep than that if you had that time of the year. We had a lot, a lot of things like dal and, um, you know, fresh corn on the barbie. Mm. Um, Whatever's plentiful. We don't eat a lot of meat probably. Mm. Yeah. When it heaps, probably four nights a week we yeah. would have meat. Mm. We've also got fish in the – we've also got chicken. So we've bred chicken. Yeah, yeah right. Bottom. Didn't do so well this year because I'm too busy. And they're specifically for meat or they just – they're eggs right. and you get a few leftovers? No, so we have the incubator pot. going 
um, August, September and October. We get up to about 100 chickens, but um, this is a bone of contention in our house. So if Charlie was in here right now and we hadn't relegated him to the packing shed, (laughs) he would say, bloody chickens, all we're doing is breeding fox food, eagle Mm. food, and making a bloody great mess and costing ourselves a lot of money in wheat. So, you know, we grow things like amaranth and sunflower seeds to try and substitute, um, and they all free range, so they're, they're scratching outside all day, and we run wheat blocks that I feed them. But I've just gone up to four days a week off farm, and we can talk about sustainable mm. tables. Oh, no, we will. But um, like we just at this, when I, was, when I was touring, when I'd written the book Future Steading, and when I was touring the book Future Steading, I was living, breathing, thinking, functioning this sort of future steading life, and it is when I am at my absolute happiest. But um, oh, there was, it was tricky because we're still in startup mode at the orchard, and really, I couldn't facilitate things like our irrigation system that required Charlie's input. So we were bottlenecking all the time because I couldn't finish things. Charlie yeah. would have to then, you know, we were relying on Charlie for a lot more things than he had time for. So we've done a bit of a shift where I now do four days a week off farm, and he does. Well, at the moment, he's doing three, but he'll go down to two again soon. This is the detail. Like, do people want the detail? No, well, I think so. If, if you, you, you're, you feel like telling me, then it's important. <laughs> it's you. So, no, it's, it's interesting because I, I was a bit like Jacob yesterday. We were getting quite granular about his chickens and his this and his that, and I was, I'm, I'm just fascinated. So um, I asked those questions because I just love to know how things work. You mm. know, how does a farm work? Because farms... Everyone's different. Everything is different. The people involved, the <clears throat> infrastructure, the season, the animals, mm. the appetite for this, the, you know, passion for that. <clears throat> and and I, I think I, there's a season <clears throat> for everything too. And I don't just mean the four seasons across the year. I, I kind of mean the season of your life. Like we're in startup mode with our Black Barn Farm business, which is a 10-year process. We're kind of seven years into that. When we first got here, it felt like Charlie's dream and so I needed to curate something and that was the homesteading component of it that I know how to do with my eyes closed. I've grown up doing it. It settles me and sort of nourishes my soul like nothing else does, so it was good for my mental health. And so the the time and the place made sense. We got full on into woofers. We had, you know, huge. We had a paddock patch, a hoop house and a, a kitchen garden all functioning and that made sense for a five-year period and I wrote the book, Future Steading, and it was really reflective of where our life was at right then. Um, and it will be again in two or three years. Like Ultimately, I know that's where we need to be, to be our happiest and our, our most centred. But it just can't be all the time. So right now the kids are about to do year 11 and 12. Minnie's just coming into womanhood. You know, we're trying to give them the time that they need so that they can really well, we can acknowledge that they are undertaking a, a rite of passage as they move into young adulthood and they need more of our time and, and so it's just where we're at. Something's got to give, hasn't Something's it? Something's got to give, mm-hmm. yeah. And if we hadn't built a bloody great big barn, which I love and is beautiful and service, services all of the needs that we have and the purpose that we're ultimately working towards but probably didn't need to cost us as much as it did, I probably wouldn't need to be working off farm as much as I am. And I think also if I had opted for a job that maybe wasn't as all-consuming, I have the most amazing team and I feel so strongly that the work that we're doing is really critical and important right now given the state of the calamity that we're in on this globe that 
that work is actually really important to me here and now. So something's got to give and it's the homesteading in its entirety. And that's not necessarily good or bad <clears throat> or, you know, <clears throat> it is, as you say, it's like there's, it is, it's interesting. It's a good way to put it, the seasons of life and the, Mm-hmm. What 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 becomes priorities? Sometimes things get pushed in front of us as priorities. You know, you can't stop your children growing and mm-hmm. you know their their succession through their teenage years and so on. You, you know that you've got to roll with those things. And <clears throat> if it feels right, you, you know, do it. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't feel right. Like mm-hmm. this weekend, where I went and wrote my, I'm writing a second book, and um, I I huddled down in a little hotel called Seven Creeks Hotel in Euroa. There wasn't really a plan to be there or do that, but I just I couldn't be around my kids at the minute because I really needed to recalibrate and reconcile the fact that because they need as much as they do right now, I actually need to give up a bit more of the stuff that I'm doing for me. And so that can be hard and confronting. And the reality of it is that for two years I'm probably not going to have my hands in the dirt as much as I need to. And, yeah. That- well, as much as you like to. Because you may be no, needing well, to do this. No, I kind of need right to now. do it. I've done yeah. it all my life. And my I calibrate through my day-to-day rhythm of having my hands in the dirt and, you know, it settles everything. And because the the woman, the mother, often runs the household, Charlie's pretty bloody hands-on, but um, because my influence, if I get heightened, the whole household gets heightened. And so putting my hands in the dirt changes everything. Or just milking the goat for half an hour changes everything but if I can't do that then I've really got to find other ways to work out how to be a really good mother and a really good CEO and a really good farmer and a really good farmer's wife and you know a good community contributor I've still got to work out how to be all those things but just with a different lens. Sounds like you've got an amazing combination of your mum and dad really you know creative looking around this is a highly beautiful aesthetically pleasing thing that barn is not just a a barn. No, you know, it's been slow. Things have, <clears throat> there's a lot of things going on here. So you're clearly um, able to pull those different facets of, of planning and um, orchestration and, and sprinkle, you know, heavy, heavy layer of creativity in there too. That's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing combination. Yeah, and only possible because I'm married to an amazing human who is. Um, very level, very rational, very consistent and hardworking, very clear in what our vision is, pretty uncompromising and, and able to kind of just just keep logging and fill all the gaps. So he, And his integrity is really the backbone of everything that we do and I can't do that on my own. And I'm, he's definitely the much better human than I am. <laughs> The much no. better human. He, he it's not a competition. Come on. <laughs> so what's Charlie do when he when he's off? Uh, when he's if I can ask when he's not sort of grafting apples and mm-hmm. you know filling the gaps. What what's what's he doing off farm? Uh, he's a geologist actually. So he works for the Victorian government and he works um, simply put in post fire hydrogeology. Post fire hydrogeology. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He'd have had his hands full a couple of years ago, did he? Oh, and ongoing. Yeah, he's um, become such a specialist in a few really key areas that every time there is a fire or even isn't a fire, there's there's a need for his understanding of of 
he'll say, maybe he won't listen to this, but he'll say, that is not a very good explanation of what I do. And it doesn't really <laughs> matter whether we are in the, in the guts of a fire season or not. I mean, he has vast and varied fire roles, but um, there's plenty to do when it's not burning. So what was, <clears throat> just to um, I'll get your spin on it, what, what's his, because oh, I'm fascinated by the cause of fires, how that happened, and then post-fire management. And I'm not. I actually don't know much about this. Why I'm asking questions and curious. What were, what's been the the management for those areas that burnt to a cinder, like the carbon in the oh, soil burnt, pretty much. Complex. Like what 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 has been done, or could be done, or should be done. What's what's here's all the government sort of angle on it. I'm really not the expert on this, and it is complex, mm. massively complex. So we currently manage. Um, with a pretty heavy fist, really. Like we are, we are pretty heavily involved as humans in the landscape, um, and that isn't necessarily mimicking what was done when the land was managed for the sixty thousand years under indigenous um, integration. I'm really not the expert. Charlie would have some pretty strong opinions, although I don't know if he would share them publicly because uh, it's political and it's totally. and it's hot. And it's complex, really complex. It's sort of a whole multi-hour conversation in itself that I'm really not in a position to contribute to. But it's definitely, if I kind of take a little tiny chunk on the edge of this conversation, it's definitely part of the way we think in terms of um, our regenerative approach to farming and the way we integrate with our community and the way we um, work with our off-farm jobs because we've kind of all got a role to play in this and um, I have two completely paradoxical opinions on this. One is that governments are led and have always been led and so we as the individuals need to find ways to unite our voices and come together and make decisions that ultimately have regenerative outcomes, not even sustainable or degenerative because there's no bloody time for that. And it doesn't matter what the language around it is. It might be agroecological, it might be biological, it might be regenerative. In my mind, they're semantics, and I'm not going to get caught in the bullshit of that. But I, I do think that every one of us has a role to play in the way we make every single daily decision. And the outcomes of that have an impact on cultures, on communities, on animals, on ecosystems, on humans. And so... If we come together strongly enough and our voice is strong enough, and it is, it's, the tables are definitely turning, governments will act, even conservative ones and even democratic ones that are locked in bureaucratic process. But then there is this other flip side of this that says, you know, we've gone so far down the path away from our deep understanding of the ecosystem that holds us, that is a complex web of mutualism where actually not one of us can exist without the other and we all have this beautiful symbiotic need to exist together. We're so far from that now in our Western culture that, you know, we don't have ritual and we don't have a deep understanding of the seasons and we don't know where our food comes from and we're, we're disrespectful of wasting and, you know, we're not actually connected because we go to our our quarter acre block and we shut our gate and it's safe and money makes it easy to to have conversations that don't require nuance and compromise and empathy. So 
we kind of exist in this world that is geared around this growth paradigm that is really heavily dominated by mainstream narrative, which is influenced clearly by a single you. And that ultimately leaves us in the churn. So as individuals who I've just said should take responsibility for our, for all our own actions and push to bring this change, it's actually a massive ask because we're stuck in this quandary where we're churning, where the cost of living is suffocating us, where our ability to put food on the table is compromised, where you know our, our ability to find a spare five minutes to give to the greater good or the community is getting more and more difficult because people are stuck in this churn. It's broken. The system is fundamentally broken. We've got these incredible, what we now know as abstractions, that sort of stop us from accessing genuine mutual aid and genuine connection to ecology and, you know, an ability to go outside. Screens are the biggest bloody abstraction of all time. We're faced with this noise that shouts at us every day and tells us to exist in a certain way. And so we can't actually extract ourselves from that existence because it's so dominant. So, you know, I think um, to farm for us allowed us the confidence to say we can bring all of our knowledge of systems thinking, we can bring our desire to contribute greatly to our community because our belief is that we're only as strong as the community that we're in. We can do something that is fundamental, which is to grow food in a way that nurtures the earth, which is critical, not only to our understanding, but, you know, to our need to to share that knowledge to others. And that actually can allow us to put food on the table and to push back on the messages that mainstream media shoves down our throats. And actually grow in a way, not just us as people or the food that we grow, but as the community that we're part of and this sort of, you know, fabric, tapestry, whatever you want to call it, um, is that wraps around us. We can do that if we opt for a very simple farming existence. So we farm, that was a very long-winded way of talking, of getting away from talking about fires, but talking about the fact that, um, you know, you could apply all of that thinking to the way we manage our fires in this country. And you could look at it from top down, you could look at it from bottom up. They won't be the same. They might meet somewhere in the middle. No one's looking at what happens in that middle ground because the government are in their own sphere of policy and legislation and we're in our own sphere of day-to-day making life exist and just trying to get by with our community, with our individual families. So, you know, you could look at it from either perspective, but the reality is that we live in a system that is faster than our human capability to keep up with it, more costly than the vast majority of us have got access to the resources for, um, more disconnected than we've ever been before despite the fact that we've got this thing on the end of our hand that is glued to us that allows us to be connected to anything but actually we're not connected to the things that matter. Eating food that is more highly processed and and um, more highly packaged and more highly wasted than it ever has been before. So we just have no food literacy. I know I'm not telling you anything you know, don't know, but I think until us as individuals have the ability to actually walk away from the system and find a way to be really content with enough and reframe what success looks like and rechart a path that is in cohesion 
or standing shoulder to shoulder with our next door neighbours regardless of who we vote for and look past some of that more shallow stuff and actually live wherever we are in whatever way that needs to be for each of us to, to do the things that fulfil us and, and rebuild ecosystems that we're massively responsible for destroying beyond their ability to return, then we're in a whole world of trouble. Like the time is now to, to, to make change and it, it might be the way you grow your own herbs. It might be the way you contribute to a community co-op. It might be the way you eat your meals from a veg garden or from people that you know. You know, it might be the way you, you embark on conversation that is empathetic and compromising and generous and warm and human. It doesn't really matter what it looks like. It'll be different for absolutely everybody and the drivers will be different for everybody. But for us, it was um, a need to be on a community-scale orchard. And so that's what we're doing. It connects us to our locals, local people through the food that they eat, conversations that we have, the potluck dinners that we share. Um, and, you know, that has enabled us to really work with a foot in both camps. This is a challenge. This is a, the paradox of the existence that we're in right now. For those of us who want to do something that seems bigger, there's a shitload of compromise because we're not taking long-winded holidays. We're not um, spending money on clothes. We're not eating in restaurants. We're not getting our hair cut. You know, we're not doing any of these things because we can't afford it because, you know, there's a whole lot of um, whole lot of sacrifice that is required in order to get us to the next phase so that we can stop working for the man. It's, a, it's really a question of, <clears throat> as you say, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and, like, where does one, is it pleasure or pain that motivates people to then decide where to put their time? Like, there's ground, you're, you're here, your hands in the soil, you're growing food, you're a community. It's really grassroots stuff, mm. isn't it, you know? Yeah. And, it's, and that, that resonates out sideways and up, you know, like, to, to the community and up through different layers of society and so on. And then your other, one of your other roles is with Sustainable Table, which is, I mean, I hazard to say, not hierarchical, but kind of a different level of engagement attitude. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, and it's not that one's better than the other, it's just where you've chosen, and, and a lot of people do similar things, you know, they've got their business, their farm, and but they're they're on they're on a committee, or they're sort of doing more community, local, or or, or even beyond. Mm. Like, how do you decide how to allocate your time? Like, where do you think the best bang for buck is, and in terms of impact, or is it it's it's not one or the other? It's and you know. I think it's and mm. I think it's and or or yes and <laughs> both. Um, I wouldn't be happy without my hands in the dirt and neither would Charlie, and so both of us have acknowledged that and said this is where we need to be and we want our kids on country and, you know, so that is uncompromising. <laughs> but that doesn't pay the bills. And also we did years and years in, um, you know, systems thinking and policy development and, um, you know, industry development work that isn't top-down but it does sit at a different altitude. And so it's crazy if I'm going to go on 
earn money because I need it in order to go through this establishment phase, I'm crazy not to put it into a space that I have deep passion for, long-standing knowledge of, and um, have the ability to look at a higher level altitude, as we just said, systems change. So I feel like, you know, I can have 500 conversations in a weekend with people that come to the UPIC and that definitely has, a, has an impact and it, 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 it breeds connection and it's beautiful and I can hug people and I can look them in the eye and that's amazing. But then on Monday to Thursday I'm, um, you know, I'm writing board papers and we're looking at, so I'll talk a bit about Sustainable mm. Table. We are working with um, some incredible individuals who are philanthropists and we're just starting to unpack what it might look like to work more closely with impact investors, which is sort of the same thing really, um, except that one has more expectation of a very visceral outcome or a return on their investment. Um, and we're combining the efforts of those, those few and it's creating a singular pot that then allows us to understand what the ecosystem of the regenerative agriculture and local food network looks like right across Australia. We're mapping that um, on a map, actually, that is free to join and that everybody should get on if you are a regen. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Great. That's just through um, sustainabletable.org. Yeah, totally. Um, so we're, we're mapping the system. We're understanding where there's opportunities to connect industry to connect funders to projects that wouldn't otherwise get funded because, you know, our, our funding approaches in the country are fairly conservative and they're not necessarily in a position to back the, the edge dwellers, the, the experimenters, the mm. ones who are using different language and the ones who are giving outcomes that aren't yet understood. So, so our ability um, to work with those industry who are genu- genuinely looking at systemic change is heightened because we've got values-aligned funders that we're working with. There's not a huge number of those funders at this point because predominantly, you know, farmers work in a regenerative mindset but investors tend to still work in an extractive mindset. And as long as that's the case, we can't actually bring them to the table because they can't actually have the same conversation. Yeah, a different paradigm. Totally different Different paradigm. filter for things. What success yeah. looks like. And so we need to change the paradigm of, those who are wanting to bring genuine change to look at it more regeneratively and not extractively. And so there's a huge amount in that. We've got a a comms team who are breathtakingly capable of telling the stories of the farmers and the stories of the aggregators and the the food co-op managers and the, you know, education um, organisations and bringing all of those stories together. Um, We've got an industry development team who are looking all the time for opportunities of people who are just doing things that are needing backing because they're at the brink of falling over because they're exhausted because they're pushing against a, a pretty strong agricultural sector that is in in not alignment at all. Um, and then we've got our, our funding team or our partnerships team who are working with funders to understand what it looks like to shift paradigms. That's a really big journey for people. You know, we've spent a really long time um, praising this concept of growth. So to push back on that and to get them to to realign their thinking is is a challenge. And so that's the work that we're doing. So when you say funders, as in people who <clears throat> potential funders that you kind of enrol and can you know in conversations around 
um, I guess, why it would be a good idea to support you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the only reason they would support us is because we're supporting industry. And so we are only as strong as the industry that we represent um, at Sustainable Table. And that's everybody who's in the regen ag sector and local food system. So, you know, the, the fund that we um, secure dollars for on, the behalf, on behalf of industry is relatively small. Um, you know, we can't unlock institutional capital because they are not on this page at all. Um, Hopefully not yet. Well, it's a while off here, I reckon. I would love to think that we're, and we're starting to have big conversations and they're awkward, uncomfortable conversations with people who don't want to be challenged about the role that First Nations have in our agricultural sector, that, um, you know, commodification and, and long supply chains have. Like we need to be shortening supply chains and this approach of centralised um, processing is problematic. You would have talked with Jake about that yesterday. Just localising and decentralising our our facilities and our growing and our capability to feed ourselves is so critical mm. and it's going to need to happen fast. We saw examples of it collapsing, our current system collapsing during COVID and if we can't find a way to rebuild that quickly um, with support for things like infrastructure and um, building of paths to market, then we're actually looking down the barrel of lack of food sovereignty and so that's bloody frightening. Is that one of do you guys work with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance? Alliance yeah, in, so in they're the, definitely uh, a key player in this ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, and so too is Open Food Network and Brisbane Food mm. Connect and um, Sustain. You know, these are all organisations who are working in this sphere um, who aren't wedded to techno solutions that are export oriented. We ultimately need to understand that export is a key. Part, but it's it's not actually the way we will recalibrate and build deep regeneration on our soils on this country. You mentioned before that <clears throat> you, um, I think you said you had training in, was that effect of policy development and so on. Mm-hmm. Was that, and I think you're referencing Charlie as well, <clears throat> was yep. that somewhere between uni moving here and then well, there's a gap there somewhere? Yeah, don't, well, we did. Don't try and 50. dance around. I picked <laughs> that up. From, all over your <laughs> yeah, so there was there was a time when was it you you were using your university studies to then you were working in that sort of field, were you? Yeah, both of us in various fields. So Charlie has worked for the government for the better part of twenty years, um, and so he has a very intimate understanding of how government works and what the processes are and how policy is formed, and you know, um, and I have worked on and off for private enterprise and not-for-profits but in various sectors, but um, both of us have done quite a lot. I don't think it's rain, but I think it's fog. Fog. Yeah. Because we're at 850 metres altitude here, we – oh, it might be rain. It might be rain. might be a little bit of rain. Have you got your windows up? Yeah, I have. (laughs) I have. Sorry, go on. The fog rolls in. Um, We've also done years on – committees and um, things like local food working groups and, um, you know, strategic planning facilitation. And so I did a lot. I did about 10 years of facilitating various sectors and, and in, in various ways and so worked with lots and lots of groups that were trying to create local food policy and local food action plans and local food strategies and, you know, we were then taking some of the 
sort of more templated versions and rolling it out in other areas in the country. So it made sense to bring all of that stuff together. Lots of that was done as a volunteer, though, just while I was still working. I worked at the tourism board for about a decade. Local? Uh, the North East Victorian Tourism mm. Board. So they were based here locally, but we had a fairly broad region that we were representing. And again, working with other government agencies like Tourism Vic. So you do start to get a pretty solid idea of how the dynamics works. Yeah. <clears throat> and any other projects apart from the, I'm sure there are, but anything else that you want to mention um, that Sustainable Table are doing apart from the um, region farm and fooding. Uh, Food and farming map. <laughs> you know, but it's um, such a we have just released what we call the RIF, which is the Regenerative Investment into Food and Farming Research document. There's 160 pages of brilliance that Tanya Massey has written. So she's one of our industry development managers and she oh, yeah. just is an incredible thinker. And she had a really solid challenge in front of her because um, she needed to find the right language to use that represented the paradigm and the pathway that we probably all need to be taking, but it needed to resonate with funders who don't use that same language and don't operate in that paradigm. And so she she looked, did about 60, 65 interviews across the globe to understand what, what different models that are successful look like, um, to work out where the, the triggers are that allow things to flow, what the blockages were and, and where the opportunities were. She's also pulled together a whole series of case studies um, so that we can really get into the, the nitty-gritty of those projects that are working. And um, as a result, she's then flushed a, a number of projects, about 45 or 50 of them right across the country, that need funding support now. And they're projects that um, sit within the themes that we've identified as being the key themes in the country that probably won't get um, easily secured funding otherwise because they're just too experimental or too What, what do they look the like? What, any, any that you can, you can name without maybe mentioning names if you're not allowed to, but it's sort of like... No, no I can mention of, names and most of them are um, exciting and on the hunt right yeah. now. So um, we're working with Ori Co-op, the Organic Regenerative Investment Cooperative, and they have undertaken a whole heap of foundation work to to really establish what kind of alternative grains could be grown um, in in the off season of wheat producers. Um, but it, un- it uncovered a whole heap of challenges. It made them realise that there was issues with distribution, there was issues with storage, there was issues with processing, um, and there were issues with you know paths to market. And so, actually, when you pull the whole chain apart, you realise that just about every part of the chain actually needs needs reworking. And mm. so they're doing an incredible job now of, of formulating what the solutions for that need to be and um, seeking funding and we're trying to work with them to, to get that. And what was that? Who are they again? Just Ori Co-op, the Organic Regenerative Investment Cooperative. Investment. Oh, yeah. So they ran a pilot in... Um, the Riverina District and also in WA, and they pulled together a really solid cluster of of wheat producers in both of those regions, and trial different crops, and then um, you know small scale crops then require different handling afterwards, and so it really uncovered a whole heap of the challenges to to really shine a light on why we actually need to to restructure our system away from that 
centralised processing and centralised mm. purchasing and, and distribution model. Mm. Any others that bring to mind? Yeah, there's lots, actually. <laughs> Which one do I choose? Because <laughs> you might get in trouble. Why didn't you mention us? I know, I know, I know, I know. And I'm you talking don't, you all don't the have time to. about them. We've got a lot of First Nations-led projects yeah. that are um, completely redefining. It's it's interesting to note that only, you know, I think it's less than 1.5% of Australia's bush foods sector are actually driven by Indigenous folk. And that's really not okay. Like, we really need to... to go back to base on this and we need to recalibrate ownership models and we need to recalibrate um, input and, and voice so that the voices that we're hearing are those that bring thousands of years of knowledge to the table. And that looks completely different to the model that we're currently running with where ownership is dominated by colonial families mm. or, or corporate families. And so that really is... Heavy rain. I didn't think we were getting rain today, so no, you're meant to bring sunshine from the northern. No, no. Look, we're, we're not. Bora was not known for its sunshine, but um, it was. As I said this morning, it was sunny in Albury. I don't know, mm. but this is did it need rain? It's not. Doesn't look dry. <laughs> no, and is that the tradie that's like the going, builder going out? I'm out, out of here. here. Yep, <laughs> your know. commercial kitchen can wait for uh, another day. <laughs> he's forgotten his something. He's he, forgotten something. His keep cup. Um, can't even see the sheep down there now. They've all oh no, they're under the trees. They're sheltering. Um, let's get back to Black Barn Farm because you mentioned because you know you've been called Black Barn Farm for some years, and it was interesting <laughs> that you were up there before I arrived and we were sussing out where to do the interview. And you said, "Oh, we've just recently finished, completed this one, built it." And I was going, "Hang on, well, there was a yeah, yeah. There was a, how did that come about? Like you, you had a plan. You we clearly had, had a plan. plan. Well, we always knew. And what do people say? You go, what, where's the black barn? <laughs> I know. It was about a six-year-old, a, a local kid who turned up one day to help me set up for an event who said, so this is called Black Barn Farm and we're standing in a corrugated grey shed. This is no black farm. Was, <laughs> was like, it on that side? The, the, the no, old, that's, our, that's our um, that one there. packing shed that's yeah. still there that used to be the original packing shed that we now use for packing, but we're about to turn it into a cidery. So apple cider vinegar, apple cider and apple juice will all be produced in Black Barn Farm. Cider? Yeah. Alcoholic or, or non? So soft and hard. So um, apple wow. juice of all the different varieties. They've yeah. got 100 varieties. And so you mix them or you have separate, <coughs> do separate brews? We'll do separate brews, yeah. So we haven't done it yet. Oh. We're still, we still don't have enough um, quantity to get through our U-Pick and farm gate. Oh. And um, we will, though. The trees are only six years so, old. So you're, you're at this point better off? Getting people to do the you pick thing and pay you for the apples that they pick and do that as opposed yeah. to then going, we're going to turn this into a yeah, yeah, yeah. drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it'll be evaluated in good time. Yeah, okay, cool. So that's that's good planning. Good planning. What is the, um, have you got a, like a, cider, a ciderist? Who, who makes cider? <laughs> if well, you're someone, do you need help with um, that? Like, what's we the- definitely need help with that because at this point, neither of us are expert winemakers or cider, cider makers. Um, where, Hoping, I mean, we've got family members who actually are winemakers, so we could work really closely mm. with them. We could also um, put the feelers out to see if there's others who want to work with us in collaboration on doing the cider making component, and we just do the growing, so we just grow the apples. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing is that our 16 year olds who don't want to live on a permi property might actually whiplash and come back to us and might have the desire to become. I reckon. I think they, they often do. And it's probably good they go away and they experience yeah. this and they get it out of their system and they 
Yeah, you know, it's it's the it's the it's the alchemist, isn't it? It's the story of yeah. finding oneself, and you were already there. You know, yeah. you you were you were where you were where you started, and I think that's the case with a lot of kids. And I think my experience with not our children necessarily, but with people I know who were made to stay at home, quite literally made to stay at home from school, mm. hated it. Yeah, hated yeah. it, and then they leave and never come back. No, so, so my, yeah. So we just this multi pronged business. We always knew the Black Barn would be the central cog of our ability to work with farm kids, work with school kids, sorry, work with those who are wanting to upskill and learn their own skills around homesteading to come to the pick your own. Um, But also, you know, the nursery. So there's all these, there's about five or six businesses that are either already functioning off the Black Barn Farm Foundation or have the ability to. So we've just started working with a, a beautiful local apiarist so that we can scale up our our hive management. So they'll put more more hives on here? Yeah, so we've run a few hives in the last few years for pollination and our own honey purposes, but now that we've got the barn fully functioning, we knew we needed a whole lot more and we thought the boys might be interested and we've got our own hives. We've got about 40 of them in the shed, but they're just not and we don't want to force them to do something. Although you've got saying so you've got forty of the hives in the shed. Yeah, so they're not full at the moment. Oh, I was going to say they're extra. Say that's, <laughs> extra, we, extra protection. We thought rather than activating our hives yeah. and putting expectation on our kids to run that as a micro business, we just put it out to our community and see Who wants what to do that it? looks like. Well, that makes- and someone has come back and she wants to run school <laughs> programs and she wants to run courses and. That's awesome, and she's a she's an apiarist or enthusiast. She's a really a really. Um, yeah, competent apiarist. So well, it makes, it makes perfect sense, much. doesn't it? You don't have to be an expert in everything. No, and we don't want to be. We don't want it to be the mm. Jade and Charlie show. So we've just also started working with a garlic grower because we've got extra space. And last year, um, because I went and did a book tour in the States, the garlic crop became the collateral damage. And so we just turned that back into the ground and realised that we just couldn't do all things. So we're now working with someone else who's going to produce our garlic for us this year. Right. Um, and you profit chairs, I know. You come to yes, some arrangement. that's right. So they just yeah. grow it and we, we'll then just push it through the, the barn on their behalf. And the boys actually have been working with that grower. Um, they actually planted it all and they've harvested it all and they've cleaned and packed it all. So the boys understand it. Mm. And I did say to them, when you think you're ready, there's all this spare space and capability for irrigation and we've got the equipment for you guys to set that up. So when they're ready. I think they're beginning to say that there's a lot of potential that they could pick up mm. smaller micro-businesses, but we don't just want it to be our family either. You know, we have yeah. beautiful woofers who we've worked with who are keen for access to land who are looking to come back and do market gardening, um, which would take a huge load off us because at the moment we try and grow our own food and enough to then sell through the barn, farm gate. And so if someone else wants to start a business of their own but doesn't have access to land, this could be ideal. Because farm succession doesn't have to always revolve around, and that's kind of a vague term anyway, what is it? Um, doesn't mm. have to always revolve around family members, does it? No, that's you right. Know, there's something in that. That's exactly right. And, you know, the people that we run women's circles here and, um, you know, we run lots of other workshops that other people run on here if they're skills that we don't have. So we just, we really have built it to be a place where there is enough foundation on the ground for lots of different people to to yeah. access and utilize, and ultimately, it's about creating a community that can can grow and know its food. 
Um, talking about growing and knowing, um, can you, before, just to sort of consolidate the produce, because I'm fascinated, and so can, just can you just list everything that you are currently, in, say, the last 12 months of grown or growing or grown, whether that's still growing or you've... For us you've, or for the No, bar? just for the, for the business, for like what, what you're offering to... I guess it's a bit of a rundown on the on the business that is here. Yeah. Like you're preserving a lot of your own stuff. You're selling some of them. You're doing your pick. Um, you pick stuff. You've got sheep. Like I'm just interested. In, I'm just talking, I'm, I'm just thinking about. But yeah, that's it. I, yeah, I want to yeah. emphasize the yeah. the amount. Yeah, you know. So we have quite a few kilometers of berries. So there's raspberries, blackberries, of which both have about ten or more varieties of each. Um, there's and there's winter, sorry, there's autumn and there's summer cropping. So they crop from about the last week of December right through until our first cracker frost, which is about early May, maybe April. They're higher up on the hill, so they don't get as affected. But anyway, there's berries. There's also blueberries, but they're only just coming on. They've been pretty slow to take, so we're still waiting on those. But there's quite a few hundred kilometers, uh, hundred meters of those. There's currants, green, uh, red, and black currants. Um, there's pears. There's about 13 different varieties of pear. We did have cherry, but we've pushed them out, and we've got apples, um, both eating and cider. Cider apples get knocked sideways because they're right in the back corner and they get a fair bit of um, wildlife pressure. And so because they're also so far from the house, they've got really good root systems and they flourish at the beginning of every season and then get um, hit sideways by wallabies. But um, then there's apples. What, what the wallet they eat? Uh, what they're browsers, so they just eat all the leaves oh, right. and the bark. Yep, they're just, buggers. Yeah. Beautiful, but buggers. Mm. Um, and um, apples. So we've got about 100 varieties of apple. And so they harvest from January till June. And um, then there's also all the nursery stock. So And then there's also the tea. So we do all the herbal varieties of tea. So we graft every year for the nursery stock in September and then we put that on line in April and that gets picked up or posted in the, the depths of winter, so that'll happen mm. pretty soon. And we take all the cyan wood from our own trees. We also do um, all the berries as well, so we, um, we're cutting up all the berry varieties and they'll be... You mean like little... The canes. Little canes, yeah, yeah sell them too, right? Yep. So we don't do blueberries at this point. There's some beautiful growers of blueberries like Mundara, so I would recommend everyone go there rather than to us for blueberries. Um, but for cane berries, we'll have those for sale through the farm gate. Can you get um, blueberry cuttings? Is that how you can propagate them? You can. We don't. No, but that, that's, that's, that's right. one way to do it. Yep, that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, tissue culture is another way that cane berries are often grown at scale. But we don't do that. We just take cuttings from our own property, knowing that we're free of of the things that can often kill raspberries, mm. especially. Mm. Um, and then there's a tea that I just mentioned. So we grow and dry about twenty five or thirty different varieties of herb and leaf, and we just grow that in the hanging racks in the barn. And then I just make up all sorts of different blends, and we have um, tea blends here for sale. Do you have a signature blend? Um, yes, but it's actually not my favourite. It's the one that people keep coming back for, but it's probably not my favourite. And I call it Earth Mama, or we call it the Black Barn Farm Earth Mama, and that has got a cola, uh, lemon verbena, fennel frond and fennel seed, calendula and lemon balm in it. What, and yeah. what's its 
What, what's what does one take that one for? What element or? It's pretty earthy, of? but it's really <clears throat> cleansing. Mm. Um, and it's good for your skin. It's good for uh, digestion. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And so lots of herbage there for teas, and, and but also veggies in the garden. Yeah. So if we have an excess of anything, it goes out there. So we always have bunches of shard and bunches of herbs and bunches of um, any of the extra greens that we've got, like mm. red bone sorrel or or um, lemon sorrel. And you'll you do that on the on the weekends when you have your gatherings here. Uh, that's when we're open for you pick, but yeah. we also do gatherings, you know, events and Every, workshops. Yeah. So we use everything that we ever prep for those gatherings comes out of our garden. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And that all happens in the kitchen, like most of the prep, food prep in the kitchen there? Yeah, it does in that tiny little kitchen, wow, um, which incredible. is why we're putting the commercial kitchen in Yeah, up at the barn. But um, there's one more thing. You oh, got, flowers. We oh, do lots well. of flowers. And yeah. our, our local florist is glorious and she lives two doors down which is great because she just sends me a text and we leave buckets of flowers at the gate for her and then she just returns them empty but generally the flowers that we do um are intentionally designed not to compete with other small scale local uh, flower growers um and they tend to be the things that are the residual or the leftover from a food producing thing so the fronds from asparagus Mm. um the unharvested um, fennel, fennel, yeah. The unharvested uh, globe artichoke. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do globe thistle. We also do Queen Anne's lace. Oh yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's a um, amaranth. We grow amaranths yeah. and sunflowers for the for the chickens, but then we use them as a crop as well. Mm. So we've kind of got all these little micro businesses, which sounds a bit exhausting, but mostly they're just slightly more scaled up home versions but actually contribute to the, the greater financial greater. viability of a small-scale family-run orchard, which isn't viable if you just do apples or you just do pears. Uh, and then you push into the commodity market. Have got pigs? No. No, they're the one thing we haven't gone yet because we feel like we probably haven't got space or time to manage them. So we have our goats that we milk and we were supposed to eat the boys. Well, that didn't happen we oh. just fall in love with them. and oh. <laughs> they turned to pets. <laughs> they turned into bloody so, pets. So with the, the goat's milk, because you said you were, you were doing that this morning, what, is that commercial? As in do you sell it? What, what's the product out there? Or just for you guys? So that's just for us because we don't have a licence to sell goat milk mm. and so we don't. There's a couple of friends who we trade with. Yeah. But um, we make goat soap, goat milk soap. Yeah. Um, and we sell that through the barn and we run workshops for that. Um, and then I make a lot of cheese. So it depends on yeah. the season. But if we haven't got kids on her and she's producing two or three litres a day, that adds up to quite a lot across the So just the, the one goat? Yeah, so there's six out there. Yeah. But our main milker is just one. She's a dream boat. She's yeah. beautiful. How many litres a day do you get her? Depends on the season. But at capacity, we, when she's at her highest capacity, we get about four litres yeah. a day. And when she's not, we get about half a litre. And that cheese is obviously is still home use and eating yeah. and swapping and bartering and that sort of stuff. I do regular um, ricotta and I do a weekly halloumi. Wow. Yeah. Bloody hell. Um, I, and you grow chilies. Uh, yeah. That's incredible. We grow, most, we grow most things. We can't grow citrus so we swap it. Yeah. Um, and every, who's going to – no one turns down berries, frozen, no. frozen or fresh. No. Or apples, actually fresh apples in season are bloody magnificent. Oh, totally. Mm. How do you, what's your, what's, what are your tricks to planning? Our week 
or our year. Your life, just like, you know, God, you've got sheep out there, you've got to milk the goat, you've got, I don't know, stuff going on, you've got things to cook, you've got woofers <laughs> to feed, you've got berries and It's really seasonal. So we know exactly what September looks like because it's the month that we are always grafting and always getting the activation of our wood chips going. So that's in the calendar. That's, you know, preordained and, and, and yeah. things are done prior to that yeah. in preparation for yeah. the month of September. And in September in that case. also we've got our chickens in the incubator. Um, we've got a lot of eggs coming up. We've got a lot of asparagus coming up. So our food is just dictated by what we've got in the garden. Um, you know, I could go through every month. Every month has something that's big, like a big bolt hole in it. The, the main, the main product activity. or main activity. Yeah, and where does that where does that all sit? Though. Is that in a blueprint? Is that in your head? Is it on a chalkboard? Is We've it- now been doing it for so many years that it just we know exactly what that looks like. And I think actually, there's the thing that whenever a woofer turns up and we say, "What is it that you want to learn?" They all say, "We want to learn how you do your planning." And we say, "Huh, well, it's all in our head, but let's have a look at it on a chalkboard." And we do a whoa. Thunder and lightning going on out there. Um, It sounds like there's a lot, but there's a season for every single thing. So I tend to not – it all fits in. It all fits in. I'm making a lot of goat soap at the start of the harvest season, so I do a lot of that in November, December when I've got excess milk anyway. Mm. Um, I'm doing flowers when they come off in January, February and March, and that's really the only time that I'm picking them. Um, and they're all in the ground as perennials generally, so or self-seeded. So um, there's not a lot of sowing management of that. Um, I make a loaf of bread every day by feeding the starter in the morning, making the um, first batch in the evening before I go to bed and then tipping it out at five when I wake and, you know, letting that sit and that's in the oven by lunchtime. So it, it all mm, kind of happens. There's a system. There's, there's a, a really like a rhythm. solid rhythm yeah. and that rhythm is really seasonal. It's Every day is sort of similar but completely different, but every season is the same. You know, there's sort of these things that hold you and ground you in place. There's ritual to that too. Deep ritual, yep. And and you said you grew up with that, didn't you? Like that was kind of like that was, you know, how it was every day. Yeah, you'll see there's some seedlings out there at the moment for the brassicas. They haven't gone in the ground yet. That's about a month late, and the the rams that should have been culled a month ago mm. are still in the paddock. So I, that's really indicative that we're really, really busy because if our our cyclical out. rhythm yeah. is out because we've taken on too much, so me taking on an extra day of work a week <coughs> has been the difference. Yeah. How do you – so there's a planning element and then there's also the – I mean, is, is that something you would put into a blueprint so that – you're kind of not so responsible for telling and talking through things with a with a woofer or you guys well, want to go book. away. Or, I wrote Future yeah. Steading and that's kind of what Future Steading is. So Future Steading is our six-seasonal blueprint for our year. Yeah. And that could be picked up by... Prince, I mean, I guess principle-based too. So yeah. there's, yeah. Yeah. So anyone could pick that up and adapt it to their needs and work out whether their rhythm fits with it or pluck bits from it or... You know, a woofer could take it and live here for a year and fully function like we do. Yeah. Same same need for ritual, same need for creativity, same need for production. Yeah. I mean, we know that if um, we've had our first frost and I haven't got my garlic in, I've missed my garlic window. Mm. I don't get it planted. And that's actually what happened this year. It made me say too much. Yeah. I've got maybe 
200 out there or 300, but not the 5,000 that we need in order to sell through the To, to and, turn them over through that. Yeah. And when that came out in 21, 20, 21? Because you, you, you used to have some COVID hiccups, didn't you, with, with your lawn? Was it 21? Yes. So I wrote it in 20 just after the fires. It was really the fires that spurred me after yeah. Charlie did his massive stint at fires. And what was it about the fire? Was it the fires that prompted you that just happened to be after because that was where it all fell? Or was there, was there, was there like a, I've got to capture this? Um, I think it was so, that sense that the nation had galvanised and finally were saying we need this is real and yeah. we need to make change and the time is now and I felt that really deeply in my bones while my husband was doing 16-hour shifts away for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and I was in the smoke haze managing a farm and the panic of small kids and, you know, all of that. And I thought, I've got the skills to live a life that's paired back and that is different. I need to share that. People keep asking me for it and I scrawl answers to their questions on the back of paper with my illegible writing and, you know, it's not enough. I actually need to consolidate that and I need to put all that into something that people could pick up and start to really shift their own paradigm. Um, but then the launch of it, of course, was impacted by COVID. Mm. So I still managed to do just short of 200 Conversations around the country, and then I did an American um, East Coast yeah, tour that's, that's, with it. Yeah, right. When when did you do that one? Twenty one. Twenty two. Right. What are we in now? Twenty three. I did that in our winter last year because winter's a good time for us to go away because everything's shut here. Oh, yeah. And the boys went to a, a summer camp over there. Actually, Minnie did too, and um, we toured that all up and down the East Coast of the states. How they receive it summer. over there. Beautifully, but they are more, I mean, homesteading is a much bigger thing in the States, a much, much bigger thing. So I was largely preaching to the converted. Um, I did do quite a lot of, you know, sidewalk talks or city-based conversations. And and I think the, the magic of writing a book isn't that you put all your thoughts and words onto a piece of paper and then you can talk about the book. It's that the book gets read and the basic concepts kind of filter to the top and then you can use those as starting points for conversation within community. And the community conversations were unbelievable. Mm. We had people swapping keys to apartments in um, in New York, in, in, you know, the busiest, buzziest streets of New York because one person had a balcony that they weren't using and someone else needed space to grow their tomatoes. And so it was a catalyst for... Catalyst for connection. big conversation and connection. Yeah, so that's, yeah, well. yeah, why I'm keen to write another book. Can you tell us about that? Or is it a secret? Look, I think I can. Squirrel? I don't know. Yeah, well, you um, tell me. <laughs> it is about taking all of those skills that we, we own and have agency in our own worlds and connecting those to each other. When you say skills, as in the um, homesteading skills or, or, yeah, or not what even, even if it's just belonging to community gardens or, okay. you know, owning a community-owned lawnmower or vacuum cleaner or washing machine. Like it's just the different ways that we so so commu- like So relationship and dynamics and, and connection, those skills, yep. how do we... Which are really critical when you're living in the city. Totally. You know, you don't all have the ability to have a sprawling garden. Um, but... The book is really about how we, I'm calling it at this point, huddle, huddle, the way we huddle, the way we bring our communities together, whether they're our, the community that is on our road or in our street, the community that is, you know, mm. the, the parents group, the community that is our, our blood, 
the community that is formed through the things that we've attended, like like school or workplaces. You know, we have so many different communities in our sphere, but it's about bringing those, huddling those those communities together so that they mean something. So we build ritual with them and we teach and share skills through them and that we um, ultimately find a way to build genuine mutual aid. And kind of when that when that's humming, it's like one plus one equals three, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And as times get more difficult, this is going to be really critical. The way we interact with those that we aren't necessarily values aligned with. Like I have a community on my road. I don't see them very often. Mm. I probably don't vote the same way as lots of them. I probably don't earn the same amount as many of them. I'm not the same age as lots of them. You know, my kids aren't at school with their kids, but they are still a community. And when a bushfire goes through, I sure as hell know they're my community because... It's a leveller. It's Literally. a complete leveller. Mm. Or when they were in drought mm. or, you know, when they have a proliferation of, of a fruit that they knew we got knocked sideways with because we're lower in the landscape and out the, the frost hit ours and they share theirs. You know, it, it is a real leveller. So mm. just the way in which we build our communities and, and huddle together is what the book's about. When's it coming out? Well, I'm only just in the process of um, collating recipes from people that form part of my huddle. And I'm in the process of unpacking um, stories across the chapters. So it's not my story like Future Steading was. It's the story of others. Like little case study kind of things. Little case studies, yeah. yep, yeah, cool. of other people who have have created a huddle and what theirs looks like and how they're executing it. That's very exciting. Mm. So when do, you, when, when do you propose? When How long do we have to wait? So all systems going to plan. Um, it'll be out in early 2025. That's how long an illustrated book takes to come together. So wow. even if I get all my words finished by Christmas, it won't be out before April twenty twenty. Illustrate as in do you do you illustrate? Do you do illustrations? Uh, anything that's got pictures in it is referred yeah. to as an illustrated. Yeah. And so future setting is an illustrated. Mm. Um, and so that has about 150 photos in it, but it also has beautiful illustration by a woman called Megan Grant who who has painted all the way through it. So I don't know what the next one will look like. That hasn't we haven't reached <laughs> that bit yet. But um, yeah, an illustrator takes a long time because of layout and all that formatting. And, yeah, yeah. Tell me, um, how do you rest? Because you said you're exhausted. <laughs> I rest in the garden. I rest with my animals. Is it rest or recovery? Because um, I think there's a difference. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably I'm resting and recovering when my brain's not activated. Mm-hmm. So if I can be really, really gentle and take a big deep breath and just free my mind of all the complexity of the moving parts, um, I can do a solid physical day in the garden and that is the most restful thing I can possibly do. <laughs> Or being around my children, not being around my children is sometimes restful. <laughs> <laughs> this is very pertinent for me right now, you'll notice. <laughs> Sending you away to was it Euroa for the weekend. Yeah, yeah, on an unplanned book writing expedition. I got a lot of words on paper. but um, That was great. So how, how do you, so you said that you, when you're in the garden you can release yourself of those things. Like what, what is it? Is it just the mere... Active hands in soil repetition, repetition, swinging the axe, 
going around yeah. in a circle on a lawnmower, digging a hole, just Something to be said for, for that. It's a real therapy, isn't it? It's a real... Oh, it is actually my idea of heaven, is mm. digging a hole. I said this on a podcast with um, Barry Lieberman once on the Dumbo Feather podcast, and she said, oh, to dig a hole. And I said, no, I literally mean I'm off to dig a hole. I, I need to actually dig holes and have my hands in the dirt pretty regularly yeah. to rest. I saw this great little video meme thing, I don't even know what you call it, on Instagram the other day, and there was a, a girl who, and she must have been, she must be a furniture maker or something, and she's standing there, and maybe she was turning wood or something, I can't remember, but she had a tool, and, and the little thing was, uh, little words were saying, my mind, when I start working, and <clears throat> or start, yeah, start, start my work, or pick up a tool, and then before she picked up the tool, there was this like, you know, like yeah. it's like static, and then the music that she obviously put over the top was like just it was just this beautiful hum, uh, you yeah, know, because yeah. that's what happens. It's like as soon as you yeah. – and you can't <clears> – <throat> it's a bit like the, you know, the cold plunges. Yes. Like yeah, you yeah. can't not – because your body goes into survival mode, even when you're working out and you're pushing weights or you're, mm. you know, that sort of exertion, which, you know, digging a hole is, is a form of exertion mm. – you can't hold in your mind those problems that have been weighing you down no. when your body takes over your attention, whether it's pain or activity or exertion or cold plunges or, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, watching the grass disappear under the mower yeah. round and round. I think it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It's like so, it's one of those yeah. things, like that's what she's, she, they should teach in school. Yeah, like don't go working out because it's PE and you've got to and that's what you, it's part of the curriculum. Like yeah. work out to get your mind off your Problems and then being in that state can often, you know, it's like meditation. You you meditate to clear your mind, or so they say. But I find that my best, I don't know, ideas or thoughts or progressive kind of thinking comes when I'm sitting there trying to meditate, and my mind's going, <laughs> "I'm just going to make kaping, some kaping. shit up." Yeah, but that's okay. That, but that's okay, you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. You, you sort of you, you're not. I guess sometimes you're looking for solutions for problems in that state, but mm. there's just so much to be said for. Activity, physical activity, which engages a mental mental activity, which is, as you were saying, is kind of like well, 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 sort of letting those things go, mm. letting go of the the need to then be planning this and doing that. Um, and I'm not very good at this, by the way. I have to say, my wife is much better, and she understandably chips me about not probably doing more of that. But I so, as I get older, I so appreciate. And and it, you know what? It's also the guilt factor. Yes. Because mowing a lawn, you can pay someone to mow a lawn <laughs> or you can let it go long and not worry about it, you know, but yeah. mowing a lawn is like, oh, it's a bit of a, bit of a, you know, but <laughs> tell you what, what a, I love mowing a lawn. I love mowing a lawn too. Yeah, yeah. I can put a podcast in my ears and I can whip around and just sort of go to another world. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, I'm looking at the time and I'm also wondering about yes. do I have any other. That's a very long pod. Quiz. No, it's great. It's, it's, it's not. It's not about quantity, it's about quality, and it's both. <laughs> um, podcast, give, give your podcast a plug. Because what I'm going to do next, oh, yeah. if you're okay, I've got another extra 10 spare minutes, is to um, do a quick Q&A for our Patreon subscribers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah that good. they get the extra oh, you're good. Q, Q, Q&A. Um, well, the podcast is just called Future Setting as well, and it's me interviewing other people. So the book is sort of our story and our seasons and our rhythm and our rituals. But the pod is me interviewing other individuals who are living like tomorrow matters, which is the tagline. And so we kind of we, we kind of cover a massive gamut. You know, we go from 
um, frontline activists to, um, you know, urban-based market gardeners to naturopaths to um, chefs. You know, we've covered a really, Mm. really broad range. There's about 125 episodes up there. I'm taking a big, deep breath at the moment. When did you start doing that? April 21. Wow. And then how – so you were doing – a lot of them virtual or most of them virtual? All virtual for All the first. Virtual. We've done probably 10 in person and the rest are virtual. And that was like one a week then, was it? Like how it was sort yeah, of we rolled. ran them in seasons of 25, doing yeah. one a week for 25 and wow. then we took a six-week break and then ran another one. Um, and then I had beautiful Katie Payne um, who did the, she started the very first one with me and the last one I put up um, about three weeks ago was with her as well because she – Stopped doing them with me when she moved to Meliodora. So she lives oh. with Sue and um, David in Hepburn there at Meliodora. And she just said, look, I need a different pace of life and it doesn't include a podcast. It didn't include lots of things, but it also meant dropping the pod. And so we stayed really close. And um, She's still there? She's still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Yep, she's been there for a couple of years now. But um, she stopped in maybe season three, the start of season three. And we've just finished our eighth season. Wow. So Good on you. Yeah. So I'm just taking a break from that for a minute because I know I'll go back to it. I love the conversations with other amazing humans. It's a bit of organising though, isn't it? Like even though it's like, oh, it's only an hour out of my week and whatever, but it's like the organising this and then there's the upload. I'm not sure how you produce and do all that. but there's four still... hours of a week. Every pod's about four or five hours. Yeah, and it takes a bit of, yeah. bit of doing. And I, we, I've put Patreon up, but... um. I just am so hopeless at following up on those sorts of things. There's too many moving parts. Yeah. And I do it because I love the conversation, not because I need the return, but it's hard when you've really pressed for time. Mm. Anyway, so that's sitting tight. And then the other exciting thing that we've got coming up is Future Studying for Kids, which is an online portal and a a launch of a a box, a seasonal box that you you can order. And it's a whole series of activities that the kids can do in Ages. each season. Um, six to 12 or four to 12. Cool. Little, little. When, is that out? No. When's that? Not yet. So we just, um, in fact, the boxes for the sample boxes are sitting just behind you, so I need to pack them up. So you sign them. up and then you get sent the boxes, kind of like the kit, is it? That's right. And you get a kit that will give you That's eight unreal. weeks worth of activities for that season. Sign me up. Yeah. Is it is it based on like is it an autumn and a spring and you know, a that uh, so season or the seasons as per their future studying calendar? So oh, that's okay, yeah. um, awakening, alive, high heat, harvest, the turning, and deep chill or deep winter. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. So slightly more nuanced, and there's yep. eight weeks in each season. Yeah. And so it doesn't just have activity cards, but there's things like scavenger hunts and um, journaling activities. But then there's also you know, the equipment that they need to do some of the things like seeds and So when's the first one coming up? When's it coming up? Come on. Uh, that'll be ready by Chrissy. Oh yeah. Christmas? Yeah. Good Christmas present. Good Chrissy present. So we're hoping to have that out um by November online. Yeah. Okay. So Tell there's me lots up. of moving parts. Yeah, that's so good. Lots and lots of moving parts. Hey, um let's finish it up there, Jay. That's been so I've so enjoyed that. I'm I I just fascinating fascinated that and the other interesting the really interesting thing is how many acres have you got here? 25. 25 acres. 23, I think. You know, 23 and a half. The, the amount of produce activity, you know, progress that one can make on 25 acres 
We got five thousand acres. Yes, that is overwhelming. The and I, I know, and I'm, I mean, but but we're not obviously as intensive, and we haven't got you know hazelnuts and chickens. We've got chickens, eggs, and things, but just it's a whole different thing. And I'm fascinated with how it works at such a small scale. And often I think, you know, we've got that much land. Why couldn't we get twenty five acres in a corner mm. and do that? Mm-hmm. So we can do both. You know, not mm-hmm. to be greedy and go look what we can do, but it's more like. Let's, you know, you don't, like, to have this model in, it, it, it can essentially work anywhere in, in, in theory. I mean, maybe not in Antarctica or, the, you know, mm. Central Australia, but to, to be able to emulate, you know, the scale and the, the intensity anywhere, principle-based is, would be, I'd love to do it. You know, we've got our garden, we've got our veggie patch and a few, few fruit trees and things, but it's, but it is, it's about the focus and the time, isn't it? Yeah, and I think also the community. So I was talking about this the other day because Charlie said, do we need to scale this up? And I was with Tanya Massey and we were in WA at the Haggerty's property actually. Oh, yeah. And um, they said, we've kind of got a community of people that live on our farm mm. to manage our 30,000, actually I think they're up to 60,000 yeah. acres. Um, what, what, you don't need to scale up, but what you do need to do is find these landholders that have the ability within their own little communities on farm, and you're the same with 5,000 acres, to create the microcosm within yep. yours. So just scale your orchard up a bit and scale your yeah. veggie garden and production up a bit and give that to someone as an opportunity, mm. like al- allow people who can't get access to land the ability to participate in this and to learn and to create their own businesses that are viable. The the the, the bottleneck there is accommodation. Yeah, I yeah. reckon because like I'm not sure what the availability is like around here, and so. you've, you when you've got wolfers, they they're staying on farm, are they? You yeah, so little... we've converted our packing shed. One yeah. end of our packing shed has a, a little self-contained apartment over there with lofts, and there's a couple of caravans out there, so wolfers live in caravans. So that's the thing that we, you know, we're, we're looking at, because we often get approached and say, well, can I do some work? Or not so much for enterprise, which is I'd rather people go, oh, oh can I run pigs on your farm? I'd love that mm-hmm. to happen because, you know, that would be the, that's the invitation right there, um, but it's the accommodation. To be able to mm. say yes and yes. that converted shipping containers yours or that caravan or that thing, I think that's the, yep. that's the, that's the, that's the bottleneck at the moment is because yep. Bura was growing bananas with all the different reasons and accommodation is very, very scarce. And so once upon a time you could find an old farmhouse with your neighbours and yes. pay them 50 bucks a week and it would be sweet. Yeah. But now – yeah. Um, yeah, it's a whole yeah. different thing. It's really tricky. Yeah. I mean, our nurses and teachers and, mm. and um, retail and hospitality staff can't get accommodation in this town no. to service the businesses that are trying to function it's in this town. It's a real bottleneck, isn't it? Yeah. So what, I don't know what the solution is, just buy a heap of caravans, tiny homes, <laughs> convert yeah, tiny this. Homes. To, what about old school demountables? Yeah. Yeah, look, whatever it works. My brother is looking at – we were in Taz last week having a look at some of these and – uh, look, this is everywhere. Mm. This is not a – but, you know, we've got a garage out there that could host someone beautifully and we've got a packing shed that could host probably a few more. Yeah. Can do it something. Yeah. 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 I have to think about <laughs> I can convert an old silo. Oh, be gorgeous. <laughs> That'd be beautiful. Just put a floor in it. <laughs> There's tobacco sheds right along – tobacco kilns right along the Ovens Valley near us and they just sit there. Empty. Yeah. 
Like yeah. They could be converted and turned into accommodation for people. I know. Okay, too much to think about. Jay, thank you so much. We'll slip into our Patreon in a minute. We'll have a stretch. Stand by that fire. Stand by that fire. We've got chili. Put the kettle feet. on. Stanley. Yeah, we have. Jade, awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charlie. I <laughs> so talk and talk and talk and talk. Oh, yeah, I disappeared. I'm back. I went to just stoke the fire. <laughs> And next week on The Regenerative Journey, I interview Jake Walke. He has a farm down there at uh, near Aubrey. Um, he's doing b- b- beef and uh, pork and all sorts of chickens and eggs and all sorts of amazing stuff. He's a lovely fellow who's doing amazing things, um, a real entrepreneur, and um, just showing how much food can be produced from a small area, a small farm, uh, and how he services his customers with clean, nutritious Beautiful food. He's a real inspiration, um, Jake, and he's doing some really good education sort of events there as well with a number of um, uh, good you know, doctors and, and health practitioners and farmers, and it's just a lovely, lovely bloke and lovely chat with him next week, Jacob Walkie on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.